As we have watched the world change this spring, the mission of inspiring health and fitness by bringing out the endurance athlete within all of us and connecting that athlete to nature has taken on a new meaning for me. Letting the outside in, letting nature in, is not as simple as it once was, but it's certainly more critical than ever. While epic outdoor adventures and events still beckon, the everyday moments have become more powerful, meaningful, valuable. Cool air on a morning run around the neighborhood, warm rays of sun on our backs during a long bike ride, seeing spring flowers pushing through the winter's thawing fresh ground. These little moments give us a renewed appreciation for what nature gives us, holds for us, waiting to be felt and absorbed daily. As we look towards the future, a bright future, let us carry this appreciation forward into our new adventures. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Weekly Word Podcast. I'm Chris Hout, AIM Coach, and this is episode 141. As most of you know, the Weekly Word Podcast is an ultra-endurance resource. On this podcast, we talk more than just training. Each episode, I try to dive into all the aspects of ultra-endurance, recovery, nutrition, mindset, and sleep. And yes, I train some of the most extreme ultra-endurance athletes in the world, but most of them also have a full-time job and family. Not only are their adventures extreme, but they fit it all in somehow. They basically went pro in something other than this endurance, sport, endeavor, adventures that they signed up for. But before I dive any deeper into this podcast, I want you all to know that I really um, screwed up this episode in that I forgot to turn the mic on. And most of this episode is recorded on the computer microphone. So not nearly the quality or the volume that we would like for a proper podcast. And I apologize for this in advance. Some of you might wonder, well, why, why didn't you just re-record it? Well, sometimes, not sometimes, most of the time, I don't go off of a script. Maybe this intro, which you can hear I re-recorded. The rest of the podcast usually is just as the thoughts are flowing in my head. And especially this podcast with regards to flow, our mental state, the guardrails, how we approach this current pandemic in time. That just came based off of the conversation in my head the other day when I was recording this yesterday. So for me to re-record it will clearly not capture the thoughts in the same way. And so I would like to leave it as is. And I hope you understand and bear with me. And I apologize in advance for the, the distant sound quality and how you might have to turn it up to properly hear this podcast. But I thought the value in that versus re-recording and not capturing a lot of the original thoughts with it um, would be better for all of you. So please let me know what you think of this podcast. Again, I know it's not ideal. I know it's quite distant in the volume and it might be frustrating to listen to whether it's on a run or whether it's driving in your car but hopefully we can get the most sound out of it as you turn it up whether in your headphones or on the volume on your car or wherever you listen to this podcast so enjoy this podcast 141 let me know what you think please send me feedback or any thoughts you may have 
and enjoy. Today we're going to talk about a variety of topics, but from the intro alone, you can hear how important it is for us to let the outside, to let nature into us and into our heart. Whether the feelings of worry, anxiety, grief, or guilt are conscious or not, they are subroutine, running in the background of our operating system, taking up limited space on our hard drive. In Willpower, the book Willpower by Roy Baumeister, he talks about suppressing or faking our emotions, which one might do with the aim of getting work done, does not come without a cost. It depletes our limited willpower and wears us down. Let's not overlook the fact that our emotional state directly impacts our physical well-being. This is well documented. What can be put on the back burner? What can be extended without compromising health and progression in our training? What is good enough? Level of detail and the attention we put to it can we soften that a bit? Can we make it more achievable due to more time? Can we change routines, morning versus evening routines, or vice versa in our training? Can we move strength on different days or move the long days during the week? Flexibility so that we can have a positive impact on our fatigued emotional state and therefore benefit our physical well-being. To be clear, adjusting our expectations here is not to suggest we avoid the responsibilities of our training or are too lax about it, or that we shouldn't strive to be our, to be our best or reach our desired outcome, or for me not to hold you, many of you, my athletes, accountable. This pandemic is an ultra-endurance event, and it is different in its distance for most. And as some of the shorter experiences, as some, this pandemic is an ultra endurance event and it is different in its distance for most. As some have a shorter experience than others, while others are fitter, better, prepared, familiar with it. But we are all running in it together. And as we are sheltering in place, Adjusting our expectations of our training productivity is meant to be temporary. But let's maximize this temporary time and judge ourselves less. By recalibrating our expectations now, most of us will get much more out of our bodies and minds in the long run. Greatness doesn't come from the status quo of doing the same thing over and over again with what we are familiar with or sticking too tightly to a routine. It comes from our constant struggle to live up to our promises, our commitments, our stated intentions. The last few weeks I'm observing a shift and uneasiness moving into actually restlessness, a confusion of direction which makes things in turn more difficult because we lack the structure and routine of our daily lives. Within this restlessness is also an underlying current of recognition that without the structure of our events in the future, without our routine on how we not necessarily train towards the event, but how we stack up our training and our path towards those events, 
were somewhat lost, and hence the confusion of direction. It requires energy to constantly course correct. So what is it in our structures that have become so unstable? Is part of our disappointment, lack of motivation, due to the fact that we see how vulnerable we are without our desired outcomes, without that race, without that advent, without that adventure in the future? How unstable the structure of our endurance lives actually was. That if you pull out the event, if you pull out the goal, how unstable we are. And I know most of you are not like that. I'm just saying that that's part of the emotion we're feeling. Remember, emotions don't define us. They're just a signal of how we're feeling. And so explore within us if that unstability, that uneasiness, that reflection actually highlights that, man, I was putting so much on said future date, said future event, that I got lost in the process, in the moment, in the here and now, in basically the present moment where most life is something to observe. Are we that event-driven? And the other part of that recognition or those feelings may be just that awareness as well. Those events might have been just based on approval. And now that we don't have them, we feel lost. Again, this isn't necessarily a negative. It's not like we're trying to satisfy our ego or anything. It's just that we notice that when this is taken away, it leaves a sense of emptiness. I talked the other day with a friend of mine, and we talked about guardrails, and I brought this up on a Zoom call with my athletes. The question I brought up is, are these events guardrails? Are we currently driving confused and undirectional? Or because the events have been taken away, we are driving undirectional or um, erratic without a map. And usually with the events, the guardrails catch us on our road, on our path. We can bang into them, but they course correct us. They send us in the right direction. We still have our North Star where we're heading for most of us. Without the guardrails, it feels more precarious. They prevent us from driving off that cliff, from driving off our path. But now that those events are postponed or canceled, are we seeing the road without guardrails? Is it scary? Is it daunting? How can we drive more confidently, safely navigating all the turns and dangers of the road without the guardrails? Those turns and dangers and cliffs is life. And those events keep validating and showing and allowing us and pushing us or course correcting us into the right direction that we A, have intended to head or B, that we don't even know we're heading towards but it feels like it's the right direction. We're being guided by our truth, by our subconscious, our higher consciousness. Something is calling out for us to do these events to be healthier to be fitter, to be stronger, to be more durable, to have longevity, to display a vitality in our everyday life because of our endurance self coming forth, displaying itself. 
So how do we navigate without those guardrails? By having confidence, by changing our motivations from negative to positive, belief, joy, love. And that what we are doing, training, achieving, achieving is our own path. Who, knew, who needs guardrails when we are determining the road, the path ourselves? When we know we, where we are going, where we know that each turn, each cliff, each bump in the road is making us better, stronger, fitter, more durable, more, more grit, more perseverance, more discipline, more overcoming difficulties and hardships. The only dangers and turns are the ones we create by driving recklessly or not paying attention, not being present. So can we drive with guardrails? Absolutely. It's when we overthink it on what might be around that next turn or what might be coming or what would happen if we drive too close to that cliff. That's our own narrative. That's our own story. But our confidence, our past experiences, along with our current experiences and being in the present, shape our future. And that confidence and that belief and that joy and that love for the training that we're doing navigates us, guides us down that road, no matter what it is throwing at us. Sure, currently the road is not following the map, but we are in the unknown with this pandemic. We're in uncharted territory, but we are driving, eyes wide open, confident, capable, because we do this from our internal reasons. We are driving from inside of us, not being held to the road by guardrails, but from our own confidence, from our own abilities, from our own experience, from our own flow. Remember, flow is an optimal state of high performance. Flow can feel effortless. When in flow, we know our North Star, where we are going where this winding road is leading us. It's like the force, right? In Star Wars, you can close your eyes and anticipate what the road will, how it will unfold, how it might turn, where we need to be cautious and slow down and where we can speed up. That's not because of guardrails catching us as we make our errors. That's because we're present, aware, mindful, in flow, at that optimal state of performance. With guardrails, we are just banging around the road, aimlessly, recklessly, unorganized, scattered, unaccountable, because we rely on the guardrails. But are the guardrails just leading us to where we think we might need to go by not giving us a choice, but to head in that direction? Without guardrails, again, we're more accountable, we're more attentive, or more in the moment, we pay more attention to what we're doing, to how we're driving, to where we're heading, to the terrain, the turns, the environment. We're present. We're in flow. Every workout, every time out is an opportunity to drive without guardrails. A story, an experience, an appreciation is waiting. And those become experiences that become part of our story which give us more confidence, love, joy, attentiveness, awareness in the present because we're armed with that path.
past experience of just moments ago or of days ago of those workouts accumulating without guardrails and giving us in turn more confidence to head where we're going. Understanding the map as it unfolds in our mind, not because of guardrails or because we have to look down while we're driving at the map, but because we know we're heading where we are supposed to be heading towards our truth, towards our better version of ourselves, towards our happiness, towards the joy in the process and the curiosity in the journey. A lot of people talk about the journey, but there's a curiosity in the journey. There's an excitement in the journey, not because of the process, because of the experiences it brings. Every workout out is an opportunity to drive without guardrails because there's a story and experience and an appreciation for our body, our fitness, our health, our mentality waiting. The way you approach hardship defines you. Driving down this road without an event, without guardrails, is a huge disappointment for many. And I get it. I definitely get it. And many of you, my athletes, have shared why events are so important to you. And they're all for the right reasons, camaraderie, getting to know new people, support, sharing community, love, joy, smiles, appreciation, accomplishment. Those are all great. And many of you don't do it for the accolades and the approval, but for the inner sense of joy, satisfaction, confidence, gratitude, and quite honestly, absolutely, in order to continue to validate that what we're doing and the path, the road we're heading down is the right one. It feels good to see that, feel that, that we're on the right path. But as we have talked about on the last few podcasts, we don't know where this path currently is leading us in the day to day. It feels like it's unwinding or being built as we're stepping onto it. I get that because there are no guardrails. We have to trust. We have to look inwards and trust in ourselves. But we're on this road. And there is still, as in the movies or as in the Wizard of Oz or whatever, that far off achievement, goal, desired outcome, North Star, prize, end of the rainbow, whatever you want to call it, it's still out there. It's just currently over the horizon. We don't clearly see it, but it's still there for us. And we're on some sort of path towards it. And the safe path, the secure path, the comfortable path is the one with guardrails. But currently we've lost those. The events are gone. The way you approach hardship defines you. And this time, will be just another one of life's many curveballs that you have faced. The way you approach hardship will define you. At any point, you can catch yourself as the hero of your own story, as the driver down that road we are talking about, without guardrails. You get to make that choice every day. Am I driving without guardrails? And am I driving from my inner flow? Am I present in the moment? Am I living the experience as it is happening? Or am I relying on the structure, on the scaffolding, on the guardrails around me in order to safely head down that road? Sure, it feels good, it feels safe, but the challenge is in the hardship. And don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Security, safety, comfort, that's behind us on the road. 
And maybe we can even look at it as we used to drive with guardrails, but now we are capable because of past experiences to drive without guardrails from our inner strength, not external strength, external support. We're driving from our inner flow, our heart, our joy, our desire, our clarity from flow. Bad things can have a bright side if we let them. And currently, in this current climate, in this current crisis and pandemic, there is a bright side. And if we can accelerate out of this cloud and drive our road without guardrails, again, another bright side to all of this. I said to my athletes the other day on our Zoom call, and a quote they wanted me to repeat was, Mindful performance is the quality of presence that emerges when one lets go of striving for an outcome and trusts the wisdom and talent available in the moment. If we take that into our guardrails analogy, mindful performance is the quality of presence that emerges when we let go of striving of those guardrails, of that support, of that scaffold, when we let go of that striving for an outcome somewhere, a destination down that road, and trust the wisdom and talent available in the moment. That's us driving without guardrails. That's being in flow. That's being in the present, present, in the present moment where life is unfolding. We can let go of striving. Instead, we can focus on non-attachment to future outcomes. All right. We have a variety of topics this week. Um, one longer one that talks about overtraining that I'd like to dive into and a few emails. And we'll get rolling here on the Weekly Word Podcast, episode 141. But first, before I get started, I have a follow-up regarding our nutrition conversation, nutrition and lifestyle conversation last week with Emily. And she is offering a two-week plan, 14 days, that is wrapped around what we were discussing, nutrition, lifestyle, and how to make small changes that lead to significant outcomes. And we decided with that, because we received a lot of feedback and questions and positive input, and so she would like to offer for all of you, Weekly Word listeners, a two-week plan that all these details will be on the website, but While being at home has all of us cooking for ourselves more than ever before, many of us have fallen into too much caffeine, yes, sugar, and alcohol, alcohol me, definitely drinking more beer than usual, (laughs) and it's time to clean up. What we put into our mouths has never been more important. Our nutritional habits are the foundation to our health, which will determine the adventures we are able to take on now and in the future both athletically and with our families or in our work. Many athletes and adults in general struggle with stomach distress, oxidative stress, and understanding why they are gaining weight even though they are exercising or training more than ever before and eating less. As we get ready to reemerge into an open society, more training and potential travel, let's take this opportunity to instill some good eating practices. This program will jumpstart that strengthening of our immune system, lowering inflammation, supporting summer training, and integrating nutrition 
once and for all into our self-care routines. So this two weeks, this 14 days, Emily's going to guide you through two weeks of anti-inflammatory, immune-boosting meal plans using whole foods. Athletes often complain, complain of stomach distress, but aren't sure how to replace some of their favorite go-tos. By removing some common foods that tend to cause inflammation and or GI discomfort, as well as adding in an increased amount of protein, healthy fats, and a large variety of ve vegetables, we will take big steps in understanding how good we can feel. She's going to include all the nutrition information so you will know how to adjust according to your needs based on your gender, training load, body composition, etc. The meal plans will be free of the most common inflama inflammatory, inflammatory foods, including gluten, dairy, added sugars, and alcohol. It will be an introduction. That's the key here. It's an introduction to clean, nutrient-dense eating. It's not supposed to be necessarily a cleanse or any type of intermittent fasting. That takes a lot more steps and nothing you can really dabble in in order to get the effects and outcomes that you might be looking for. And oftentimes we struggle two, three days in and we stop the cleanse or stop the intermittent fasting or even the full fasting. Whereas for a lot of the way you go about a cleanse or fasting or major changes in your diet would go through the same process of this. Gently, clarity and intentions around removing some of the inflammatory foods. It's an intro introduction to clean, nutrient-dense eating, the first steps towards a cleanse or an elimination diet. And she advises taking a break from coffee during this time. I know. <laughs> two weeks without coffee, but there's, we, she'll have ideas around substituting with an alternative warm beverage. So what are you guys going to get out of this? If you sign up, the effects of excess caffeine, sugar, alcohol, and environmental toxins and how they affect the body. Sneaky ways to increase your protein, mindful eating practices and why they are important. The benefits of food logging, New ways to incorporate nutrient-dense foods and seasonal vegetables and fruits. And how food choices, as we discussed on the podcast, influence sleep, energy, mood, digestion, and how you're interacting with yourself and other people. If you're interested in this, I would recommend you head to emilywise.com. That's E-M-I-L-E-E-Wise, W-I-S-E. Com. And there's a link to it on my website too, to Emily's nutrition website. So, and there's more details on there. So yeah, it's just something instead of talking about something like we have uh, two weeks ago on the podcast and then just letting it float out there and putting the action upon you on how to get it done. This was sort of something that we said, well, you know, instead of talking about it, let's gently introduce, let's create a transition point where we can take the concepts of lifestyle and nutrition and implement them effectively so that the listeners of the podcast or my athletes can make a choice on how they want to include these routines and habits and actions in their lives or not, or just see how they feel and learn and grow from that as athletes, right? Knowing how we respond to nutrition 
or knowing how we respond to the foods we put in our body or the foods we avoid just makes us better athletes again because you can continue to individualize, customize your nutrition as well as all our training inputs so that they are maximizing you, the athlete. So if you have questions regarding that, of course, always send me an email, but you'll find most of that answered on Emily's website. All right, let's dive into our first email. We haven't had emails in quite a while due to topics of the pandemic that we wanted to dive into. But as we're taking this long-term approach now with the pandemic, I think it's time to return to some emails. So I received this email um, a couple days ago and um, I quickly followed up with the athlete because I felt it was a really good topic, deeper topic to talk about here on the podcast. And so I followed up with the person who sent the email for more information and so forth because Again, overtraining is something that we can all benefit from learning uh, learning about. Hi, Chris. I'm reaching out to see if you can offer some help as I seem to be in a severe state of overtraining. It started about 13 years ago when I was training CrossFit-style workouts with apparently too low carbs and or calories. I haven't really been the same since, but have weird symptoms again anytime I try to get back into training even low intensity stuff, including really low resting heart rate, like 39 when lying in bed, fatigue, low testosterone, slight thyroid imbalance. I read Phil Maffetone's white paper on overtraining and the stage three seemed to describe my really, um, me really well. I heard you on Richard's podcast and you seem such like, and we don't need to go into all the compliments. Um, I thought you might be able to offer some tips to help me get out of this hole. I'm 43 and my ultimate goal is to recover so that I might be able to run a long distance race. I've been a weightlifter most of my life and have been drawn to many aspects of Rich's story and folks like him as I've reassessed my goals in midlife. I appreciate, appreciate any help you can offer. So I followed up with Ryan and uh, said I, I would love to get more information in order to properly understand and help. And um, here's the follow-up. Um, I, I sent some questions. Let me just share with you what the questions were. The questions were, um, how long have you tried the low-intensity stuff and define low-intensity? How is that determined? Also, current nutrition, do you have an approach? How have you course corrected for what you've learned by eating too little and too few carbs? What have you done the past four years from a 39-year-old overtrained self to now? How have you addressed the thyroid and low T since? So Ryan um, responded back fairly quickly. I backed off. I backed way off on the weightlifting. I only do about 25 to 35. 30 minutes in the morning of body weight exercises. I've tried the film Maffetone low intensity off and on for about three years. It seem, it never seems to work for me. It seems to create too much cortisol in me as I gain fat around the middle quick, quite quickly. I do the 180 minus 43 minus 15 as an 
as I arrive around 122 to stay under that. Oh, Maffetone's line, yes. Mostly walking, but some light jogging. I actually crashed again a year ago when I tried Phil's 180 protocol along with his two-week carbohydrate test doing almost no carbs. That is what seemed to set off my thyroid issues. It's like my body absolutely cannot function without carbs. This is actually one of the things that I am interested in hearing your thoughts on as Rich is definitely not in the fill camp when it comes to high fat, low carb. I wonder your thoughts on carbs is necessary to fuel performance and also getting fat adapted. Is that a real thing? If so, how does that, how does one do that without harming their thyroid as it seemed to happen? As you guys can imagine, I'm going to bring in Emily on some of these questions as well because I'm not going to pretend that I know all the depths of this. Over the past four years, I've tried to keep my stress under wraps, eat well, reduce intensity of exercise, but it seems as though I easily fall back into a pattern if I get either too low carbs or too low calories coupled with higher intensity, which is another thing I wonder about, how you help determine your athlete's necessary calorie and macro intake. My body doesn't seem to like too much low intensity as I feel as I will feel overtrained if I go too hard and too fast like run last weekend for an hour, 11, 30 minute miles under 140 beats per minute. As far as the thyroid and low T, I have visited a bunch of doctors and no one seems to have a clue what's wrong with me or how to help me heal. <laughs> Great. No pressure on me there. My resting heart rate remains low. Uh, it seems to get worse if I go too low carb at about 48 average resting. With my low T, doctors have made suggestions and I've tried to eat cleaner with the exception of a night or two out with some friends at the bar. Too low calorie seems to tax my body, but I have a hard time determining how much I should eat on a daily basis to properly fuel my body and yet not gain unnecessary fat. Too low calorie, lower carb for me seems to equal lower testosterone. A couple of questions and thoughts I will have in here before I run this by Emily. So first of all, I need to know how much we're training. Um, an hour is not going to burn the fat. An hour here or there. So if we're going to become athletes, we need to push the body to a point where we're burning the calories. That's the main first question. How much is training at those low heart rates. Low heart rate training, zone two training, whatever we want to call it, whether Phil's method, my method, or other coaches, it's nothing novel, but it's more a question of how much time you're spending out there at, at those low heart rates. As I always say to my athletes, and many of you have heard on the podcast, this isn't a question of what we're doing. It's the fact that we're doing the volume at the low heart rate. So an hour, 45 minutes to an hour here or there is not going to be enough to affect the body and burn fat and become so-called fat adapted. It's got to be back to back to back to back to back to back many workouts, either through volume in number of workouts or volume in length of workouts accumulating that are going to have the impact on your metabolism to change your body like that. So that's an important part to first factor in. And that is your ability to train many hours at that low heart rate. The second thing is let's not overthink the how low your resting heart rate is. It is what it is. 
there's no there's no number around what it should be, could be, and why it isn't for you. We're all individuals. I know people with a resting heart rate of 60 when they sleep, and they train at above 200 heart rate. Hummingbird hearts. I've talked about this on the podcast. I know people with a huge heart muscle, and they're you know, they're killing themselves with an all-out effort to get into zone two if you use the wrong numbers because for them, 96 heart rate is zone three. For them, anything over 90 heart rate is already touching um, the top of zone two. There's people like that, absolutely. So the number is the number. You create the baseline and you train at it. You make observations. You adjust. You continue to train at, at it observe, adjust, and so forth so that you get a valid number of what your low heart rate is, what your resting heart rate is, what your max heart rate is. That's why formulas don't work. (laughs) But so then also the question here with, as we break it down, I backed way off of weightlifting. I only now do about 25 to 30 minutes in the morning of body weight exercises. Well, get rid of it. Do it maybe twice a week. You know, if you want to change what your body needs, quit asking it to do muscular training, glycogen burning training that demand carbs, right? And do it so that you're maintaining your body strength, but not asking it to do extra work. 25 to 30 minutes in the morning of body weight exercises isn't making you stronger. It's only fatiguing you but it's still burning sugars, glycogen, and not having as much of the endurance effect, fat burning effect that you're needing still requires a fair amount of calories, carbs, and therefore it's not making you stronger, but it's not helping you with your other workouts. It seems not to never to work for me. Um, uh, It seems to create too much cortisol in me as I gain fat around the middle too quickly. Yes, that makes sense if Number one, you're still working on body weight exercises and creating a stress and a fatigue on your body, and you're not doing enough aerobic activity to burn that fat. So you've reduced your weightlifting, backed way off, still doing a little bit of body weight, but not doing enough cardio, aerobic training, volume, and zone two in order to therefore make up for what was high impact, or not high impact, but high intensity, muscle fatiguing, glycogen burning, and surely some fat burning um, efforts with regards to strength training and weightlifting. So this is a question of time. The other part that I would quickly lean into and learn more about is my other stresses in life. Am I sleeping enough? Am I eating due to stresses in life? Uh, What's my relationship with food with regards to the stresses in my life? What's my life stress, work stress, family stress, um, other stresses going on to to never allow you to get out of fight or flight and therefore um, too much cortisol as I gain fat around the middle too quickly. Then uh, 180 minus point, that's great from a um, formula standpoint, 180 minus your age, minus 15 to de- designate yourself fit. But I wouldn't say that you're necessarily aerobically fit. So I'm not sure why the uh, minus 15 comes into play. 15 years of doing exercise. I think that's the number that Phil uses. How many years you've been doing exercise, which where you, 
arrive around 122. That might be too easy if you do that 15 years. Is it aerobic exercise? So now if you do 180 minus 43, that doesn't leave you with a um, mafetone number of 122. Let's add 10 to that, let's say. Now under 132, now you might be in an ideal fat burning, aerobic capacity, um, fitness building, foundation building, base building phase from 122 to 132 heart rate. Something to keep in mind. That way you're not mostly walking, but doing more jogging. And again, because the intensity is low, the heart rate is low, you can do it back to back to back to back. You should be running four, five, six days a week. Easy, low intensity, not super long, multiple workouts. Super long, we're going to dip into stores and other effects on the body that from an overtraining standpoint, you're already so depleted and we got to rebuild that. Um, it's like my body cannot function without carbs. This is a whole different conversation. And this is personal and preferenced by every individual separately. To, and, and so, because I don't want people on my back with regards to, well, you know, I do high fat, low carb, and I've had great results. Great. Absolutely. You can be successful with that. I also know people who are super successful with high carbs, low fat. I know from paleo. I know from plant-based. I know from carnivore diet. There's examples of phenomenal athletes in all those cases. And I'm not going to go into the bigger discussion around that. But you, you, this individual, Ryan in this case, might function best with carbs and a certain amount of carbs and figuring out what that is. It's like my body absolutely cannot function without carbs. Then feed it carbs. I'm not sure why not. Um, if you had an issue in the past, I'm not sure if it was doctor um, determined, medically determined, or you determined by Dr. Google, but if you had an issue in the past with training too much with too little carbs, why would anybody continue to do that given that that's what put them in the hole in the first place? Eat the carbs. If your body needs the carbs, eat them. It's also a question of the quality of the food, the quality of the carbs, the timing of the carbs, what you're doing, how you're doing it. And yes, you say you eat out two times a week with your buddies at a bar. Well, if this is something important to you, then you would still make smart, healthy choices at that bar. Doesn't mean you have to have the two plates of um, fried potato skins um, or whatever it is. You know, we might want to stay away from that. But again, these questions come, if we're going to rebuild from an overtraining standpoint from, from scratch, it becomes a very um, detailed game truly a game of trying to figure out and understanding what it is you, not other people, you need to get out of it. And it's a very gentle, deliberate, detail-oriented rebuilding process. Being overtrained is a very, very debilitating, sometimes lifelong um, issue. I've known athletes that have so destroyed their immune system and their body and their, their, 
their um, metabolism due to overtraining, that they will never be athletes like they used to be ever again. And if they can do more than walks or some light stuff, that would be surprising. That's how bad it can go. It can really wreck you and you will never be an athlete again. So an athlete the way we define it. And yes, this is one of the rare cases where I would say not all of us can be athletes. There's some of us who have really, you know, destroyed that. Now, a lot of the athletes that have become overtrained were athletes for a while and they took it too far. Just like, you know, any dosage of anything is going to be unhealthy, right? And, and from a medical standpoint, it's all a question of dosage. You can take, uh, if some dosage is healthy for you, exercise. Too much of that dosage can lead to very unhealthy for you. So it's not a question always of more is better. If one dosage is healthy, more of that dosage is healthier. No, not really the case. Um, so before we dive into this with Emily, um, let me make sure I'm, I'm getting all the aspects in here. Um, I wonder your thoughts on carbs as necessary to fuel performance and also getting fat adapted. Yes, that is a real thing. Fat adaption is, adaptation is a real thing. Um, but it's a very slow, gradual process that you eventually, over time, due to your training, teach your body how to absorb and, and burn more fats as fuel instead of carbs because it, it has been gently taught over time to do that and start um, determining that that fuel source is better for the longer endeavors we're on. It's a more, um, not efficient, that's the wrong term. It's a longer lasting fuel source than glycogen, and it's a slower burning and slower step process in our energy system than sugar slash glycogen. The one is super fast, burns super hot, and gets you going. The other one is a slow process that takes a long time, goes through many more steps in the cycle in order to turn fat into fuel, and but it is long-lasting and it is almost unlimited in its you know in its storage tank so but that's that, again that's a long time process that's not something that goes in three four five six months that can take 18 to 24 months to gradually rebuild your body we start looking at lean muscle mass the body composition gently changes over time and you notice your muscles go from round bulky to longer and leaner. Your weight might not change. Same muscle mass, same amount of muscle in your body, but the muscle um, format has changed. It's no longer round. It's more longer and leaner, right? And all those things start happening as you become not only fat adapted, but your metabolism shifts in order to optimize you for ultra endurance and endurance. Let's see. Uh, over the past four years, I've tried to keep my stress under wraps. Good. Eat well. Well, define eat well. That's different for everybody. And it, it, it then becomes individual for everybody. What we think is eating well, our body might not be absorbing. Keep that in mind. Emily had talked about that on the nutrition podcast, and we've talked about it a few times here. Is just because you're eating well doesn't mean that your body's absorbing what you're eating well. You might be putting in some great greens and whole foods and all those things, but if you're intolerant of certain things or the certain combination of things, you can be eating up great food, 
But if it's just flowing right through you and coming out the other end without giving you the nutritional benefit, you're back to square one. So these, these are all examples. All this that we're breaking down and going through just continues to highlight this, this stuff is individual. From training to nutrition to how we go about our day as athletes, it's individual. There is no formula. There is no one plan that works for all because we're all such unique individuals and have different backgrounds and different gut histories, different athletic histories, different mindset, different understanding, different learning, how our metabolism and our gut has been built over the years, might be accepting foods differently. I grew up in a, uh, you know, in a Northern European diet versus, you know, somebody in Southern Europe eats. So my body would surely respond after 20 years in Northern Europe to all of a sudden being eating the food of Southern Europe. That would take time. Same thing is in the United States or different cultures and so forth. So everybody is in some way a little different and that's why it's so hard to apply nutrition, apply training, apply strength, apply um, in mindset, all the aspects of being athlete to everybody universally. Um, reduced intensity of an exercise. Over the past four years, I try to keep my stress under wraps. Okay, eat well. We discussed that. Reduced intensity of exercise. Well, again, we don't know what the reduction is. If it was too much, therefore not helping you. Um, how do we grow out of that hole physically that you're in? But it seems as though I easily fall back into the pattern. If I either get too low on carbs, don't get too low on carbs, don't get too low on carb calories, coupled with higher intensity. We don't need that, that combination. Eat the carbs if that's what we need to get you healthy, to get you into a routine that works for you in order to gradually get you out of this hole of overtraining and your body not responding properly to any of the training you're currently doing. We gotta, if I were you, if I were coaching you, I would completely reset everything about you so that you gain a new view, perspective, knowledge about who you are with regards to being an athlete and taking everything that you knew and almost throwing it out the window or putting it away. Um, my boss, my body also doesn't seem to like too much low intensity. We don't know that. We define too much. As I easily, easily will feel overtrained if I go too hard. Have we done 12 weeks at zone two? Have we put the proper recovery days in there? Have we gently, ever so gently built up that volume? Definitely would not include doing body weight exercises every morning. It's talking full rest. Overtraining requires full rest. Look at the stage three inputs from Maffetone in that respect. And any of you, if you want to go to that website, maffetone.com, it's, it's phenomenal. And there's a white paper on there on overtraining. And it comes up with, also defines the, what, what that stage means and also the, the steps you might take to get out of it. And you can see how long and how gradual it needs to be. As far as the thyroid and low T, I visit a bunch of doctors Again, this is the stuff Emily's going to have to help me with. Resting heart rate remains low. I wouldn't go overthink that number. It seems to be worse if I go too low carb. Um, don't go too low carb. <laughs> at about 48 average resting. Um, mine is lower at average resting. So 
doesn't mean anything. With my low T, doctors have made suggestions and I've tried to eat cleaner and eat more to low calories and to gain unnecessary fat. We've discussed that. Um, um, too low calories seems to tax my body. Yes, you have already for years taxed your body, depleted your body, in some ways destroyed your body by being too low calorie, right, while you were weightlifting. So now to even come close to still doing that is contradictory to you wanting to get out of this. Yeah, and of course that affects your hormones because your body, as Emily has said, if you are doing something in one area of your body, if you're too low calorie and low carb, the body has a way of pulling resources from elsewhere in order to get what it needs. And so something is clearly related here in that if it's not getting enough calories and carb, in this case carbs, what, you're, what you think it might be, um, it's pulling from elsewhere. And this way might be low testosterone which is very um, um, common in that respect. When we see eating disorders and people who eat too little, their hormone levels are greatly affected because again, the body is going to pull from elsewhere. And I'm sure Emily's gonna say that when she adds to this email in a moment. Again, I'm grateful for your reply. Let me know what other questions. Lastly, on this email, he um, followed up with a couple of bullet points. Oddly, my heart rate will actually slow down after caffeine. Again, caffeine is one of those things that people respond to differently. Some people respond to a little bit caffeine with huge spikes in heart rate or ang anxiousness or um, jitters. Others, they can have 10 cups of coffee and not feel nothing, right? That we all know people who know how to go to bed at night despite having two cups of coffee or drinking coffee all day. It's bizarre. So caffeine's a weird um, stimulant in that respect. It's more a question of how it affects the signals in your body to turn, put you asleep or not. It's not the caffeine that keeps you awake. It's this, it's a stimulant. It actually affects um, signals in your body. I did two stints of intermittent fasting about 1.5 years ago. Not sure why you would do that because, again, if you know you've been low calorie all your life or too few, um, too low calorie, excuse me, too little carbs, it really helped me tap into my fat stores and lose body fat, yeah, temporarily. But I felt exasperated whenever issue um, I seemed to be having. But I felt it exasper exacerbating whatever issue I seemed to be having, yes. Perhaps I didn't get enough cows in during my eating window and or prior workouts, I'm not sure. Well, it's just sending signals again to your body. What, you're depleting me? I'm going to continue to shut down. My heart rate is often slow to respond in the morning. For example, it will be roughly 69 when standing prior to my workout. Then it will take quite a bit of effort to get it around 120. And after a few minutes after that, respond back to 69. Okay, another thing. Understand that your body from overtraining is going to fight you and protect itself from training for many years to come. That is the difficulty. That is the signal of overtraining. That despite rest, despite best efforts, it does not want to. It has been taught, conditioned, shocked, scared into depletion. And it's going to protect itself. It's going to override 
the governor is going to say, no, this, I know where this is going. I'm not going to allow you to kill me, basically, right? Um, and so, yes, this is quite common. It takes quite a bit of effort to get it around 120. Yes, it is flat. It is tired. That's overtraining right there. And the true overtraining, stage three and above, is the ones that take a long time to rebuild. And like I said earlier, oftentimes um, it could mean we never rebuild it if it's more serious. I do have a heart rate variability recording from this morning. Is that of interest to you? No. Um, finally, I'll be clear with my goal to not be some elite athlete. I know those days are likely gone. I want to be a normal 43-year-old with energy. Okay. With, for my kids and wife and healthy levels of body fat. I recently read Finding Ultra and was inspired by Rich's story that I was motivated to make changes. Well, let me say something. If you're motivated to make changes, this will take a lot more than what you're doing. I know it seems overwhelming and it's a question of breaking it down into steps and gradually rebuilding, but you broke your body for 13 years. It's not going to just come back in 13 days or even in 13 months. It will take some time to rebuild what was destroyed. And if you are committed, if you want to be the normal 43-year-old guy with energy for my kids and wife and healthy levels of body fat, yes, it will take a complete re-education of yourself i.e. your mind and what you know and how you view food and exercise and your relationship with the two, as well as it will take a new relationship education with regards to your body and what training and physical exercise truly means. And I never, ever believe that it's not possible. I believe it's possible, but it's going to take work. It's going to take perseverance. It's going to take patience, a lot of it. And um, it's going to take really dealing with a lot of frustrations and running down some dead ends. But the challenge is to figure out what works for you and building ever so gently on each one of the little things that work and ever so gently building and building upon that so that you get some semblance of normal back into your physical self your hormonal self, and your overall general feeling self. So I have Emily here now to help answer as part of this question some of the more nutritional details of it, as well as just to get some um, different ideas on it and uh, or inputs on it. And that's, that's probably the main thing that we're looking to do here. And so I'm going to back into the question briefly again and sort of uh, provide a discussion parameter because I mean obviously shared the email with you Emily um, but uh, wh what I never do on this podcast is break it down too individually to the details of that person because it's just not relevant to as many people listening to this and how we all as listeners and practitioners of this in endurance sports can take value from it you know utility Yes, and we don't know enough about this individual to make yeah. you know pure recommendations because I don't. We just don't know enough. We have some information, but not fully. Yeah, and that's that's why I also followed up with it with Ryan in this case because I wanted to get enough information to have a discussion and to highlight 
what overtraining and how serious it is. It's a good talking point towards that, especially as we saw with regards to stage three. And hopefully those of you that are maybe experiencing any signs of it or are curious if you're approaching it or want to avoid it in the future, it's a great website to go to and dive into it. And if any of you need it, feel free to email me because I do um, know on the site where it is because it's a really good white paper that he wrote. But anyway, so a former weightlifter, and there must have been, and we see based off the email, you know, years of CrossFit-style workouts with apparently too low carbs and or calories. And that's the first point. Um, coming into this, we, you, Emily, and I, have seen plenty of my athletes already that you're working with um, that we've noticed in general in this endurance space, in the athletic space, many are eating too little. I do agree, but in this case, I don't know when he says restricting calories. I have no idea this guy's body composition, um, his his version of restricting calories, um, the amount of, he talks all about carbohydrates and fats, but there's no mention of protein involved. Um, usually a weightlifter or history of a weightlifter is low carb and high protein. So I thought that was interesting. Yeah, but it's CrossFit style workouts, okay. right? So he did say he stopped weightlifting in the other email, okay. but it, he started to preface it with training CrossFit style workouts. So, so yes, agreed with weightlifting. It's more the shredded look and sort of the, the lean muscle mass. And, and yes, for sure. And that's a whole different issue. I know. And, so there was no <laughs> mention of protein in any yeah. of these emails as far as I could see. So again, it doesn't give us a complete picture of what, what, style of eating or, you know, whether he's eating plant-based or, you know, purely carnivore diet, it doesn't really give us any indication of what we're discussing Yeah, um, because we don't know any protein. It just talks about carbohydrates and fats. Yeah, but overall, uh, years of doing training like this, any type of consistent training where you're deep diving deep into the well of your own physical abilities, CrossFit, endurance, strength, whatever, um, and restricting or being sh low, short on calories, will have a detrimental long-term effect over time even more so. Right. And I think, I mean, I think it goes back to part of our discussion last time about, you know, some people try to eat less on the days they're not training and, eat, you know, try to eat whatever they need to on the days that they are. But as we talked about, it just puts them in a deficit of recovery uh, because they're not eating enough after their training in order to recover for the next workout. Yeah. And then in general, just the long-term damage daily in and out of training and being in a deficit. You do that for two, three weeks, you go into a different state or fog. You do that for years, that's where it hits adrenals. That's where it hits hormones. That's where it puts you in a state that your body literally shuts down. That's what overtraining is. It is protecting itself from literally killing itself. Right. So um, I also talked a little bit earlier about how even in his return to health, if you're low somewhere, like you said before, and you said last time and the time before also, it's taking from elsewhere. So just because you've stopped training like that, but if you're still low on calories or low on carbs, you're not going to get 
your adrenals up. Well, because so often people then stop training and then think, oh, well, I'm not training as much. So now I don't even need to eat as much or I don't need to eat as well. And then, so it's not getting you out of your, the hole that you're in, you're not nourishing yourself to fix the problem. So we backed off away off of weightlifting. I talked about how 25 to 30 minutes in the morning of bodyweight exercises, um, I recommended that he does that maybe twice a week for now and focuses on rebuilding his buddy, buddy, his body. Um, because again, reducing the stress on the body, whether it's physical, mental, environmental, uh, work related, family related, we just got to stamp it all down a little bit and just allow your body to recalibrate and reset. And so getting away from all our expectations and rebuilding from scratch, throwing into that, I talked about the low heart rate and, and all that, and that's relative. It's, it's hard to know that without more data, without more testing. He's mostly walking. Um, well, I think on that, I think low heart rate, um, low resting heart rate, some extra weight around the middle. He talked about cortisol levels, you know, so you are talking, you know, the adrenals are involved in hormones involved in stress hormones because that's what adds the weight around the middle. So I don't know what he's done to address and rebalance cortisol. Um, I think he mentioned something about coffee and caffeine, and that would be something definitely one of those times where reducing any caffeine for a period of time to help reset cortisol, um, using some adaptogens like cordyceps and holy basil and ashwagandha. Um, those are typical things to help rebalance cortisol adding, you know, then he talks about testosterone is that and that's also, again, a hormone. And the, the building blocks of hormones are going to be your healthy fats and proteins. So, again, since I don't know what sort of protein balance or what was included here, that could have been extremely low or too low as well. And, therefore, the hormones just weren't able to keep up. So, to as far as recovering from this, it's you know building up enough of the building blocks, the proteins and healthy fats in order to rebuild the hormones, the testosterone, the cortisol, balance it out, um, all the other hormones that help us stay balanced. And in the short term, that might mean carrying some extra weight for a long-term outcome because determining how that stress is being absorbed by the body. Well, again, we don't know anything about the rest of his life as far as how much stress, where's the stress, other stress in his life coming from. And is, you know, has that been addressed or taken care of? It sounded like he was trying that route, you know, but as far as doctors recommending dietary information or protocols to help him recover, um, oftentimes they just don't, they're not familiar And I think there are some key nutrients that many athletes are deficient in, including zinc, which has a huge effect on testosterone, um, magnesium, and vitamin D levels. I don't know what what his vitamin D levels are or what that might look like, but those are three big ones that could contribute and help heal if they haven't been measured or looked at. And you can certainly get those from foods, um, such as, I mean, zinc, the biggest source there is oysters, um, pumpkin seeds, you know, fatty fishes are really helpful in healing. Um, leafy greens need nuts and seeds for magnesium. 
so you want to get as much from food as you can. So again, I don't know anything about his diet. So. Yeah, but it uh, again, it sounds like it's a full athlete approach back to the usual mantra. It takes recovery. It takes sleep. It takes nutrition. It takes the proper training for all this and all aspects has to be built from the ground up again. Because yeah. overtraining is just such a hole that you can remain in for such a long I've already talked about this earlier on the podcast. And so it sounds to me like in from a nutritional standpoint too, it takes a from scratch gradual. Yeah, I think I, I'm remembering there was something about fasting in there. Yes. Um, and again, this isn't the time when you're trying to heal. That's not the time to be stressing your body further, playing with starving yourself. Again, when starving yourself was already a big factor in getting you where you are. Um, it's more about, you know, taking away the caffeine, making sure you rest, prioritizing sleep, you know, nourishing, making sure you have full solid meals and really treating yourself like you're sick. Yeah, and fragile. And, 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 and trying to heal. And a lot of this is, like I was just saying a few minutes ago, is in order to return to a future self that you are um, familiar with as an athlete, it might take a lot of drastic steps in the now in order to get that back. And it uh, difficult steps and unfamiliar steps. And a it lot may of, take no training. Well, yeah. Well, uh, most of the most of the overtrained athletes that I've worked with over the years, it has meant no training for twelve to eighteen months. Yeah, and no training and very well nourished. You need the body needs to rest. I mean, it. I think it hit a point of exhaustion. You emptied the tanks, and you need a serious, you know, rebuilding. Yeah. in order to ever get back your performance and stress levels and overall just bringing everything back to a level that it, I mean, basically, and it's hard to hear, right? I mean, yeah. my heart goes out to this individual. I mean, I've just spent, you know, a couple months out of commission and to hear, you know, 12 to 18 months of rest would, would be extremely upsetting and stressful, but uh, yeah, but what it, what I've also com um, compared overtraining to is that you've broken the trust with your body. Like you've, yes, it, it certainly takes a lot of ignoring. Yeah, and ignoring so your signals. body protects itself and says, "I no longer trust you," um, and so it's going to take some time to rebuild that trust on a truly because cellular it doesn't, level. Yeah, <laughs> it doesn't happen overnight, no. and it's one of those things again. None of this happens overnight, and if we the better tuned in and more aware of what's going on in our bodies, the earlier we can address it and the less of an issue it is. Yeah. Um, you mentioned no caffeine for some time. So I already talked to them about your um, plan that you're going to be offering. And one of the things in there was no caffeine. Yeah. And I was, I, even I, as I was describing your you two week, shake. No, I was like, <laughs> I know people, this is going to be hard. Two weeks, no caffeine. <laughs> like, but yeah. um, that's part Again, of it. Again, it's, uh, you know, caffeine is one of those things that increases, um, can increase cortisol. And, and so for a person that is having trouble managing that, that's when we um, recommend taking away caffeine. Um, I think all this at home time, it, it can be abused. And again, for some people, it's totally fine. They're very little affected by it, but it's one of those, it can also 
um, mess up your gut microbiome. So it's one of those things that it can be fine or it could not, and it's commonly taken out of because you just don't want any stimulants in your body um, when you're trying to reset. Yeah, and in this time of training, maybe um, let's say 20 or 25% less, and as we're at home, and you can maybe sleep in your own home, obviously, you're not on the road. Um, and maybe you can sleep an extra hour. And mm-hmm. so therefore, you don't need the caffeine in the same way, hopefully, and you wake up. And Well, if you need the caffeine to wake up, that's when you should give it up. <laughs> uh oh, because I, I, I definitely. Well, I think I don't people, need it. I, I, but I definitely enjoy my morning cup of coffee. Yeah, but I think people being at home more, at least for me, not having to somewhere to go right away, or you know, you tend to drink more maybe than you would in your normal life, or maybe you're drinking less because sitting around an office, you used to drink more. So yeah. everybody is a little bit different depending on what their scenario is. Yeah. Well, I just thought that caffeine comment was timely. Well, somebody that has some adrenals and cortisol, it's always recommended that you stop the caffeine because it's a stimulant. You want to try to rebalance um, the cortisol on its own without the... The receptors being turned off in all of them. All right. Well, that was um, Emily's 10 minutes, (laughs) weekly 10 minutes. (laughs) All right. Diving into some more questions here. Um, Hi, Chris. Thank you again for all the information you help provide on your podcast. I hope you're keeping well in these difficult times. By the way, I opened the door. It's like 85 degrees outside my office. And if you hear birds chirping in the background, sorry. (laughs) It's just part of it. Nature. Um, I know I'm struggling and I'm finding it so hard not to be able to walk in the mountains, which is where I'm happiest. My nearest mountains are 100 miles away, so I haven't been able to travel during the lockdown. Um, I also run, which is my main form of regular exercise. I was due to run my first ever marathon in April in Manchester, England. It has been rescheduled for October. Good. But I doubt it will go ahead this year as there were due to be 25,000 runners and I don't see anything improving quickly enough that such events will be happening in the autumn. So I'm just trying to keep my running Ticking over so that I'm able to do a half marathon and then build it up from there. Thought, I thought, therefore, that this would finally be a time to give zone two training a proper go. I set myself a target of 20 to 25 miles a week, 75% at zone two. Um, is that sufficient mileage for it to work? And if so, how many weeks would I need for it, please? Okay, this ties into two emails that I was going to answer. So let me answer it right there in this part. I haven't finished the email yet, but... Let's answer it in live. <laughs> One, 80% is what I would say uh, at zone two, 10% at zone three, 10% at zone four or above. Really limit that time. But if you think about it, 20 to 25 miles a week. So let's say you run six miles an hour. That's 10 minute miles, just saying. Um, that's still um, four to five hours running a week of which if you think 80%, right, that's four of those five hours is gonna be at zone two. Now let's say 30 minutes at zone three, 30 minutes at zone four or higher, that's a fair amount of intervals, um, speed work in between all that time, or excuse me, included or inserted in all that time. So don't overlook that. Um, Is that sufficient mileage for it to work? Yes, it is, but it'll take longer. 
right? If you're running 50 miles a week, you're getting the adaptation quicker because you're spending more time in zone two. Um, just from a logic standpoint. Now, how it works for you individually might be longer or less, but um, and the relationship isn't necessarily two to one where you would say, okay, if I do need 12 weeks by doing 20 to 25 miles a week, well, I only need six weeks if I'm doing 50 miles a week. No, um, it's not quite that clean in a formula, but the more you do, yes, the quicker it goes. And I don't know the relationship of the two, the ratio of the two. So, sorry. Um, how many weeks would I need to do it for? So, I got another email about that um, from a gentleman who sent me his running test um, from, and they were about uh, four to five weeks apart. It's been a month, he wrote. And he wanted to, he'd send me another running test, and he was disappointed that it hadn't changed much. Same thing, same as this other question. Um, adaptations from a zone two standpoint take about 12 to 12 to 16 weeks to truly have their best effect. It's not a quick process. And again, we're endurance athletes. It takes a long time to achieve the endurance outcomes that we're looking to achieve. And building a foundation should not be something that goes quick. 16 weeks, you know, is not a big window um, going for the engine and the foundation we're looking to build. Um, some have asked in mileage. I usually think around 250 to 300 miles of running is what we need in order to see significant changes in how we use our energy system, i.e. zone two. So if you think of it this way, back to the 20 to 25 miles a week, 250 miles, that's 10 weeks. That's about right. <clears throat> um, so 10 to 12 weeks to see the minimum, and then you got to figure 16 weeks, if that was in the same volume every week, remember this uh, um, email, please keep in mind, recovery weeks in there, don't just set a target for 20 to 25 miles a week and do that for 12 weeks in a row, you're not going to have the, the benefits and the adaptation and the absorption we want, so, you know, it's going to probably take 16 weeks if in those 12 weeks you also build a recovery week in there where you come down to 16 or 15 or 14 miles that week or 12. And so now 12 weeks at 20 to 25 miles a week um, plus the four weeks of recovery, bingo, 16 weeks. Um, I find it really frustrating to do actually and it feels like it takes the joy out of running. I'm constantly having to walk and look at my phone to check heart rate. I don't have a running watch. I actually gave up with zone two training when I did my long run yesterday. And as I was struggling to stay in zone two, so much going up a hill. Yeah. Okay. The frustration so many have, I get it. I get it. Everybody struggles with it. Again, we have to teach our body to do something completely different. What it's not familiar, what is quite uncomfortable. And we spent our lives, not really, most of our lives undoing that aerobic energy system, that foundation, that zone two work by always going and take too hard or by thinking go hard or go home or only a, a workout that burns and feels hard and I'm hunched over and out of breath was a good workout. How many years, how many decades have we done that? So yes, we have destroyed our aerobic energy system. And in order to bring that back, it's going to take a long time and a lot of frustration. 
So I'm sorry. But that being said, the more you, the more diligently you stick to it earlier, the quicker the transition comes. And I'm not talking about 12 to 16 weeks, but where you're starting to see, huh, I can go further or I can stay in zone two longer before I have to walk. Or I can actually get up a hill while still staying in zone two. Things like that. That will help. Um, so, but keep keep that long term aspect in mind because it's not it's not gonna go quickly. I'm sorry. Um, <clears throat> one last question: If there are brief spikes in zone two when running, when you notice, but it takes a few seconds to come back under, is that okay? Sure. Many of you have heard me criticize average heart rate. Now. If you have a zone, let's say uh, 120 to 130 is your zone two. And at the end of a 90-minute run, let's just say, or a 75-minute run, your average heart rate was 120, 123. You obviously did it right. If it's below a lot of stops, maybe, of, of, of traffic lights or having to literally stop or a lot of walking, or going too easy. If it's on the top end, in order for it to create an average of 128, I doubt you ran at 128 to 129 to 130 the entire time. So too much going over. And therefore, that's why we want to focus on the middle of the zone. And of course, it's going to go over at times, but also on downhills or traffic lights or whatever. We, it might come out of the zone, below the zone. So the average should be on the low to middle of the zone. I hope that makes sense. I don't think I will ever run further than a marathon due to a dodgy knee. So maybe zone two, two training will be a limited benefit for me? Question mark. Saving the mega slow runs to Strava also doesn't feel great. Although I, should, I know we shouldn't care about that. Well, yeah, that's your choice. Strava is our choice. If we don't want to share on Strava. It's our choice not to, but it's also our choice to put us into that position. <laughs> same reason I'm not on Facebook, same reason I'm not on Strava, same reason I don't do it. I don't, it's like, no. But that being said, um, so for some of you who are struggling with the zone two, maybe you do it by workout and you say, okay, I have six training sessions scheduled this week, four of them will be diligent zone two. One of them will be on feel, just turning the brain and the heart rate and the monitoring off. And one of them is intervals or high intensity, just letting it flow. So that works too, um, because eventually the frequency of those four will add up so that it is almost 80% of your week. And you can break out the hours like that in your training sessions. So. Others, let's say you have six training sessions, insert some zone three and zone four stuff into that workout. And therefore you get out of the zone two monotony and frustration for a bit, feels really good. And then you come back to running zone two. So however you go about it, but give yourself for sure some time where you're running on fuel and you're running at some tempo and threshold efforts. It's important for our sanity and it's important also for your running form and your body, in your case, a dodgy knee and stuff like that. So, um, again, it's our choice. It's, we're, we're choosing to do this. And if you're frustrated and not enjoying it, 
maybe make some adjustments and you know take a longer term approach to zone two that you get those 250 miles in 30 weeks <laughs> it's fine you can still get the benefits might take longer but at least you're having more fun in the workouts um, let's say you do three workouts a week um, where you're just having fun and running on feel and three are zone two and so forth Again, I want you, it's more important to be out there and have fun and do the training and enjoy it and be in nature and exhale and use your body actively than it is to force yourself into a zone two parameter. It will come. It will come via frequency and consistency. So I hope that helps. The other thing that I wanted to say on that is on that email motivation with regards to him not being able to do his Manchester event. We all signed up for this as endurance athletes. We all knew everything we do, every desired outcome, every future event was going to be a long-term endeavor. Hence, endurance athletics. We have to show endurance to just get to the start line. And as we've talked about in other podcasts, this is not a question of when or how, because we will do the event. In this case, you will do your marathon, your first ever marathon, whether it's in Manchester, whether it's in London, whether it's in some other place. That's not the question, nor should it be the question. You should feel strong and confident that you can. It's the when that's not in our control, and oftentimes it's the how that's not in our control. And so We've talked about this on the podcast. We can only do what are best. And preparing for a certain future outcome might take longer. And as we've said, it might be our path. It might have happened the way it should have happened the way it did. And that means you did your first marathon the way you should have done your first marathon. And maybe this delay is keeping your knee healthier. Maybe, who knows, you were destined to do a different event and good that you'll someday look back and go, thank God I didn't do Manchester. I'm so happy I did this one because the result or the outcome or the experience or life's story and experience put me here. And that's the part I want us to not overthink with this whole pandemic and where we currently are. We were never in control of the when. Sure, we put dates on the calendar, but we were never control, in control of the when. We're only in control of the what. What am I going to achieve? And will it take longer? Yes. But that's why we're endurance athletes. We've signed up something that requires endurance, a long-term, a steady grind approach to get to the start line in order to get to that respective finish line. How it unfolds or when it unfolds, oftentimes we don't influence. Okay, careful with your ears as we come back in <laughs> with an actual microphone. Again, I'm so sorry about that recording. I think most of you will be able to hear it properly maybe not as ideally as before. Then you can see, this isn't a produced show. <laughs> it's just me and a computer and a variety of software and a variety of technology. But again, um, 
it was a mistake I made, but also hopefully you can hear within that too, that recording that again, the intro as also my thoughts with regards to zone two, with regards to overtraining. I think the conversation with Emily was a little bit clearer, a little bit more vocal. So we were able to at least get enough clarity, information, um, utility, value out of that. Having said all that, I wanted to thank you all for listening. I thank you all for being patient with me and my technology limitations. I will surely always triple check that the input device is the microphone and not the computer. Again, um, learn from those mistakes, from those experiences. Have a great week, everybody. Thank you again for listening. Let me know what you think. And I will talk to you next week on the Weekly Word podcast. Stay fit. Stay healthy, stay safe.